All right, let's get this party started. Hello, I'm Father Timothy Matkin, and this is Matins. Thank you for taking five and joining us for, uh, well, an opportunity to be my study buddy. <laughs> I uh, came up with that uh, phrase last night, and I thought, hey, that works perfect. Be my study buddy. Look at things with me about uh, the history of the church and theology and all kinds of things. If you want to write me, uh, you can, of course, comment on the YouTube uh, videos down below, or also you can email me at frmatkin at priest.com. Please like and share this if you find this interesting. You want to help other people discover this channel and this program. Um, today, we want to wrap up our study about purgatory and Anglican um, things about purgatory in the intermediate state. Uh, today we're going to look at uh, other perspectives. So we talked about a lot of Anglican stuff, and we'll wrap up with one more thing. But then we'll look at, you know, what does Pope Benedict think? What does what do the Eastern Orthodox think? What do the Protestants think? And and so on. Before we get there, let's have our opening prayer. And uh, there's a whole lot of great resources in the prayer book for devotions for November, for prayer for the departed, prayer for the holy souls. And one that's often overlooked is this wonderful collect for Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is that day right before Easter, the day that Jesus is laying in the grave, keeping the Sabbath, resting from his work. And uh, it's a marvelous little prayer that's a great devotion for um, funeral-minded um, intentions. And actually, there's an alternative prayer in the uh new 2019 prayer book. So we'll look at both of those together. Let us pray. O God, creator of heaven and earth, grant that as the crucified body of thy dear Son was laid in the tomb and rested on this holy Sabbath, so we may await with him the coming of the third day and rise with him to newness of life. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. O God of the living, on this day thy Son, our Savior, descended to the place of the dead. Look with kindness upon all of us who wait in hope for liberation from the corruption of sin and death, and grant unto us a share in the glory of the children of God. Through the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Well, before we move on to those other perspectives, one last Anglican comment on the uh, intermediate state or purgatory. The Episcopal Church uh, put out several teaching series. There was one in the 50s. Um, There's one in the 70s, I think, to, to coincide with the new prayer book, maybe spilling over into the 80s. And then there was one also, I believe, in the late 90s. Um, incidentally, you know, you notice with, with each go-around, uh, the books get thinner and thinner and thinner. <laughs> It's like there's less that they're confident uh, teaching about, I guess. But a uh, series of eight, ten books on different uh, subject matters. There's a, a moral theology book and a church history book and a uh, scripture book and, and so on. So this is from the church teaching series uh, in the 50s. Uh, so this is Christian Living. This is the moral theology um, one that they put out, Stephen Bain. Uh, I believe he was the Bishop of Olympia. And uh, in a section about uh, life and death and the afterlife and so on, um, he says the fifth element, oh, and this is page 151, by the way, if you have it and you want to look up this passage. 
The fifth, fifth element is Christianity's unconquerable certainty of God's will that all mankind shall finally come to be with him in glory. This is so basic with us because of our certainty of the goodness and love of God and of his omnipotence that it is almost inconceivable to the Christian that anyone should ever be finally lost. We admit the possibility of that final refusal, for it would be hard to imagine any perfect justice in God which did not include at least the possibility of a final condemnation of evil. And it would be hard also to imagine a real freedom in man, which at least theoretically did not include the possibility of a final refusal of God's love on our part. Yet, we are understandably reluctant to imagine that God would ever ultimately be defeated by anyone, or that his love could ever fail in the end to win all men to him. This conviction must then wrestle with two practical questions. The first is, what about people like most of us, who at our death are now by no means ready to live with God, yet whose natures have been formed during the period of probation by his grace, so that ultimately we could be ready. We can conceive of few more frightening thoughts than that at death any possibility of growth or purification would be closed to us. We would hope that by the time of our death we had some real freedom and a soul to be saved. Yet we can understand that there might still stretch before us at death a long time of learning how to live under new conditions in the presence of God. Probably most Christians share some such feeling about themselves, and it is for this reason that belief in a place or period of purification, a belief in purgatory, became almost universal among Christian people. Our church rejects what the Articles of Religion call the Romish doctrine of purgatory specifically the doctrine that living men and women can, by their prayers and good works, influence God to shorten the purifying period, either for themselves or for others. But a belief in purgatory as such has been widely held by Christians is quite permissible for Episcopalians, and indeed is included in our prayers, as such when, for example, in the prayer of the whole state of Christ's church in the Holy Communion, we pray that God will grant the dead, quote, continual growth in his love and service, end quote. Or, in the burial office, we pray for the departed that, quote, increasing in knowledge and love of thee, he may go from strength to strength, end quote. It would not be true to say that a doctrine of purgatory is specifically stated in our Anglican formularies, but it is perfectly true that such a belief is permissible, and Congress with all else that we believe about God and his ways with us, and that it is expressed in our prayers. And that kind of goes back to that idea, you know, you want to know what Anglicans believe, open up the prayer book, look, because that's where you find it. What we believe is how we pray, and how we pray reflects what we believe. Lex orandi, lex credendi. Let's go on and look at some other uh, views and, and input the Canons of the Council of Trent. What actually, specifically, literally, do they say about purgatory? One of the interesting things is, not much. Um, there's a great study by uh, O'Malley, Father O'Malley, 
uh, on the history of the Council of Trent. And um, um, he gave a YouTube talk on that um, also. Uh, you can look that up. It's, it's worth a listen. But he talks about, um, you know, there are a lot of things that Trent said, a lot of things that Trent didn't say. And the things that Trent didn't say was because it couldn't say it. For example, it doesn't really say anything about papal authority, papal infallibility. All that comes later because they just couldn't come to an, a, any agreed statement about those things. So they just left, left those for silence. But they do at least say some little bit about purgatory. Of course, that we had uh, some statements about purgatory already at the Council of Florence and the Council of Lyon, I think. Um, and then, of course, that was a big um, starting point for a lot of the Protestant reformers was uh, corruptions um, concerning indulgences and purgatory and so on. So what does the church uh, respond um, to those uh, objections with? They respond with this decree in the 25th session of the Council of Trent, the decree concerning purgatory. This comes from uh, 1563. Since the Catholic Church, instructed by the Holy Ghost, has, following sacred writings and the ancient tradition of the Fathers, taught in sacred councils, and very recently in this ecumenical council, that there is a purgatory, and that the souls there detained are aided by the suffrages of the faithful, and chiefly by the acceptable sacrifice of the altar, the Holy Council commands the bishops that they strive diligently to that end, or to the end, that the sound doctrine of purgatory, transmitted by the fathers and sacred councils, be believed and maintained by the faithful of Christ, and be everywhere taught and preached. The more difficult and subtle questions, however, and those that do not make for edification, and from which there is, for the most part, no increase in piety, are to be excluded from popular instructions to uneducated people. Likewise, things that are certain, or that have the appearance of falsehood, they shall not permit to be made known publicly and discussed. But those things that tend to a certain kind of curiosity or superstition, or that favor or savor of filthy lucre, they shall prohibit as scandals and stumbling blocks to the faithful. The bishops shall see to it that the suffrages of the living, that is, the sacrifice of the Mass, prayers, alms, and other works of piety, which they have been accustomed to perform for the faithful departed, be piously and devoutly discharged in accordance with the laws of the Church, and that whatever is due on their behalf from the testamentary bequest or other ways be discharged by the priests and ministers of the Church and others who are bound to render this service not in a perfunctory manner, but diligently and accurately. So it's very interesting, given the context, about what the Council of Trent did say in response to the reformers, to the reformers. And I would say overall, um, the comment is negative. Uh, there is some positive, there is some negative. What are the positives? The positives are, um, and this is directed to the bishops, yes, we do believe in a purgatory. Yes, we should continue on uh, with prayers for the dead. And so ensure that that takes place and that that's facilitated and that's possible. On the other side, um, no theological speculations, um, none of that uh, kind of popular 
devotion that tends toward purgatory and that imagines all kinds of visions and um, other details coming in. Stamp that out, root that out. Anything that's superstitious and that gets people kind of stirred up, you need to get rid of all that stuff. So it seems like overall the decree on purgatory is in a more negative sense. Also, interestingly, it doesn't really get into theology much at all beyond the simple affirmation that, yes, there is an intermediate state uh, where souls are purified after death, and we should continue to pray for the faithful departed. But that's about it as far as theology goes. Uh, So we should affirm the basic truths that we get from Scripture, and then, on the other hand, we should stamp out all kind of spurious speculation and superstition and so on. And so that's why John Henry Newman, when he was comparing the Articles of Religion and the Council of Trent, looked at that and said, well, you know, Trent is not really that far off from what we would say, because we would say, yes, we do pray for the dead. That's part of the prayer book tradition. Um, There was some struggle over that, of course, but ultimately, in the end, it was affirmed and continued to practice. But at the same time, we don't want to engage in all the kind of superstition and speculation and and, uh, wild ideas about the afterlife. We should stick to what we know from Scripture and just go with that. Well, of course, Trent wasn't the only comment about purgatory from church councils. We also have from uh, Florence and Lyon. We also have the Catechism of the Catholic Church, more recently uh, from uh, Pope John Paul II, coming after the Second Vatican Council. What does this have to say? Well, again, not a whole lot, but certainly a lot more in terms of substance and doctrine and theology than Trent did. So there's really only one page that talks about purgatory in uh, this uh, very extensive and grand book that's uh, over 700 pages of material. So this is, comes from section uh, 1030. So 1030 1031-1032. The section is called The Final Purification, or Purgatory. Uh, so, so 1030. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo a purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So that's basically what Trent said, affirmation, yes, there is a purgatory. But interestingly, the way that that's laid out here is with an affirmation that is very positive and reassuring that all who die in God's grace and friendship, those are the ones who are in purgatory, which is perhaps to say, in a sense, remember, purgatory is the forecourt of heaven, not of hell. Uh, All who are in purgatory are saved. Uh, This is part of the church, the community of the elect, and so on. So that's 1030. 1031 says, The church gives the name, purgatory, to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church, by reference to certain texts of scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. And then it goes to a quote uh, from uh, St. John of Damascus. As for certain, interestingly, John Damascus is an Eastern father. 
So keep that in mind. Quote, as for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned, neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. So in this section, the information we get is that this intermediate state we give the name purgatory, because purification happens there. Also, there's this reference to a cleansing fire. So if you're going to be a faithful Catholic, you have to believe that there's purgatory, that there's a cleansing, purifying fire. Now, as far as what that fire is or how that works, or you know, is that literal, figurative, what have you, uh, spiritual fire, it doesn't say anything. It just says there's fire there. And also it doesn't say there's a place of purgatory, but rather a condition, a state of being, a purgatory, a time of purification. Because again, when you're talking about disembodied souls, non-material things, it's difficult to use material terms to describe that. Place is a material term, but here we're talking about non-material spirits. So that's 131. And then the final section, one or 1032. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayers for the dead, already mentioned in sacred scripture. Quote, Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sins. End quote. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them, above all, the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that, thus purified, they may attain the beatific vision of God. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. And then there's a quote here from uh, St. John Chrysostom, also, interestingly, an Eastern father. Let us help and commemorate them, talking about the, the departed. If Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. So that third section on the teaching from the Catechism of the Catholic Church basically reaffirms the role of prayer for the dead, that yes, we should continue on praying for the dead. So not a whole lot more than what Trent had to say, which was not much, but a little bit more in terms of perspective from a theological position, that um, purgatory is not hell, that purgatory is in a sense a part of heaven, if you will, that it's a place where only the holy souls um, are, and uh, basically once you're in purgatory, there's no danger of losing your salvation, uh, and that sort of thing. Another thing to take uh, note of is, um, of course, we had talked earlier about some of the writings of saints about purgatory. Um, Augustine and St. Gregory the Great, probably the two most important uh, for the Western theological perspective. But then come, coming later is um, St. Catherine of Genoa. Um, and there's Sophia Press put, a, put out a little booklet called uh, Fire of Love, which is um, a great little compilation of some of her 
uh, writings about purgatory. And just to give you a feel, um, and St. Catherine is really com uh, commended by Anglicans as uh, kind of offering a healthy um, counter perspective um, to help us get not get carried away with some of the superstition and the kind of overblown um, kind of torture-centered uh, writings about purgatory. So this uh, little section uh, is called The Happiness in Purgatory. And she's very keen on the joy of the souls in purgatory exceeds any joy they experienced on earth. So consider this. Know what man deems perfection in himself is, in God's sight, faulty. For all the things a man does, which he sees or feels or means or wills or remembers to have a perfect appearance, are wholly fouled and sullied unless he acknowledges them to be from God. If a work is to be perfect, it must be wrought in us, but not chiefly by us, for God's works must be done by him and not wrought chiefly by man. Works wrought in us by God, out of his pure and immaculate love, by him alone, without merit of ours, are great. And so penetrating are they, and such fire do they kindle in the soul, that the body that wraps it seems to be consumed as in a furnace, never to be quenched until death. It is true that the love for God, which fills the soul to overflowing, as I see it, gives it a happiness beyond what can be told. And yet this happiness takes not one pang from the pain of the souls in purgatory. Rather, the love of these souls, finding itself hindered, causes their pain. Think of sort of the, the, the lovesick um, teenager, you know, who's struggling with these um, affections and so forth for the first time. It's, it's almost overwhelming seems to me that, well, that's what it calls to my mind when I read these words from uh, St. Catherine. The love of these souls, finding itself hindered, causes their pain. And the more perfect the love of God, which has made them capable, the greater is the pain. So the souls in purgatory enjoy the greatest happiness and endure the greatest pain. The one does not hinder the other. So, come in to you reading further from St. Catherine of Genoa about uh, the afterlife, about purgatory, about the happiness and joy of the souls there, and also the sufferings and how those don't necessarily um, conflict. Now we want to look at uh, the writings of uh, the Eastern Orthodox and also uh, Pope Benedict and uh, Pope John Paul II. Um, so I turned to the uh, Orthodox Wiki uh, website and the page about purgatory. And there's a section called Literal Fire or Encounter with the Risen Christ. It says, one of the primary Orthodox objections to the classical Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is the supposed literal nature of the purgatorial fire. So a lot of the devotional literature kind of really focused on the literal burning in purgatory. During the Middle Ages, the Western tradition began to lean more toward a literal interpretation of the fires and even torture of the souls in purgatory. A book entitled St. Patrick's Purgatory is a particularly egregious example of this tendency. However, 
over-literalizing the afterlife to focus on fear and dread didn't only occur in the Roman church. Medieval Orthodox piety also expressed an over, overly literal view of the aerial toll houses, which also inspired a kind of dread and despair. We'll come to the toll houses in just a second. According to Jacques Legoff, the conception of purgatory as a little literal physical place arose in Western Europe toward the end of the 12th century. According to him, this conception involved the idea of a purgatorial fire, which may or may not have been literal. Concerning this fire, Jacques Legoff wrote that it was thought to be expiatory and purifying, not punitive, like hellfire. So it's not there just to make you suffer. It's there to make you a better person, to get you ready for heaven. At the Second Council of Lyon in 1247, strong Eastern Orthodox opposition to the notion of a third place in the afterlife containing literal fire was one of the significant differences that prevented reunification of the Eastern Orthodox churches with the Church of Rome. Nonetheless, the council's teaching on purgatory made no mention of these notions that purgatory was a literal place containing literal fire, so it didn't go that far. This notion was also absent in the declarations by the councils of Florence and Trent, at which especially Roman Catholic Church formulated its doctrine on purgatory. However, Roman Catholic teaching does not require a belief in literal fire, or we, or we should say material fire. I think literal is not quite the right word to use there, um, because we tend to think of literal in terms of real or actual. So you can have actual, real fire that's not material fire, that is spiritual fire or something like that. Popes John, Paul II, and Benedict XVI have taught that purgatory does not signify a literal place containing literal fire, but a state or condition of existence. In Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical, Spe Salvi, he writes, quote, Some recent theologians are of the opinion that the fire which both burns and saves is Christ himself, the judge and savior. The encounter with him is the decisive act of judgment. Before his gaze, all falsehood melts away. This encounter with him, as it burns us, transforms and frees us, allowing us to become truly ourselves. And then it goes on to say, Catholic apologist Jimmy Aiken writes that the interpretation of Purgatory's fire has been complex. Historically, medieval theologians tried to understand how a physical fire could affect an immaterial soul. However, contemporary theologians, including Father Joseph Ratzinger, that's Pope Benedict XVI, had proposed that the purgatorial fire might be better understood as a symbol of transforming encounter with Christ. And then I think, quoting Aiken, he says, in writing his encyclical, Benedict XVI apparently wanted to give the new proposal official recognition without requiring theologians and the faithful to reject other understandings of purgatorial fire. By proposing it as a theological option rather than a church teaching, he made it clear that this is a permitted and even a favored view, but not the only one possible. And so interestingly, some, some speculative theology, um, which keeps things in the sphere of 
speculation. And uh, getting into speculation, there's a wonderful book uh, called Heaven, Randy Alcorn. And um, this is worth um, getting into and looking at. It's written uh, from an evangelical Protestant uh, perspective, but there's, uh, you know, I would say 90% of it is just talking about the Bible, what does the Bible have to say, and not really getting into divergences between the various traditions on the afterlife so much, except um, for really heretical views like soul sleep or something like that, and uh, denouncing those views and demonstrating how they're uh, not biblical. Um, but the, the book uh, basically says, what does the Bible have to say about heaven? Um, what are some of our misconceptions about heaven? There's a wonderful um, appendix in the back called Christoplatonism's False Assumptions. And I think it's a very helpful term. As far as I know, he's the one who originated it, Christoplatonism. That is, all these Greek, Gnostic, Hellenistic ideas about the soul and the body and um, how American Christianity has just kind of bought into that and forgotten about the resurrection, the new heaven and the new earth, um, all the things that N.T. Wright is very good about emphasizing, for example. Uh, we just look at pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. And so that's, that's Christoplatonism's false assumptions about the afterlife that we need to get ourselves rid of. But he has sections about, um, you know, the restored earth. What will the resurrected earth be like? Uh, the new Jerusalem, is that a literal city? Is that, you know, what is it? Will the new earth have things that we're familiar with, like weather, like oceans, sun and moon? Um, will we, what will our resurrected bodies be like? Will we eat and drink? Will we be capable of sinning again? Um, what will our relationships be like? And so on. There's a lot of very interesting things that he considers. Some of them speculation based on what we do know for sure, some of them um, illuminated by scripture, answering these questions directly. What really intrigued me is that, um, and also interestingly, he keeps quoting Anglicans, uh, and I don't, I don't even know if he's aware of that. And he, he quotes a lot of non-Anglicans too, but um, like he has a quote from Peter Toon, from T.S. Eliot, from C.S. Lewis, um, and they just keep coming up. Um, so that, um, that, was, I mean, that was a good sign. But in kind of getting away from the reactionary reformers, uh, what you find often uh, with a, a re-embrace of historical perspectives, the church fathers, this kind of opening up to at least the idea of an intermediate state and that there's prayer there, there's growth there, there's spiritual maturity that happens there. Um, and so he talks about uh, the intermediate state just a little bit here and there, uh, perhaps the most extensive part, which is not really long, but is part of a larger discussion. It comes in chapter 5. The chapter 5 is named, What is the Nature of the Present Heaven? And then he has a subsection, The Temporary Nature of the Present Heaven. So this is page uh, 41. He says, when a Christian dies, oh, and we should emphasize that this book is not an academic theological type of book. This is a pastoral, um, devotional, you know, written for every man, 
kind of uh, writing. He says, when a Christian dies, he or she enters into what is referred to in theology as the intermediate state, a transitional period between our past lives on earth and our future resurrection to life on the new earth. Usually, when we refer to heaven, we mean the place that Christians go when they die. This is what I am calling the present, or intermediate, heaven, or we would say the intermediate state, or purgatory. When we tell our children, Grandma's now in heaven, we're referring to the present heaven. By definition, an intermediate state or location is temporary. Life in heaven we go to when we die, or where we'll dwell prior to our bodily resurrection, is better by far than living here on earth under the curse, away from the direct presence of God, Philippians 1.23. Still, the intermediate or present heaven is not our final destination. Though it will be a wonderful place, the present heaven is not the place we were made for, the place God promises to refashion for us to live in forever. God's children are destined for life as resurrected beings on a resurrected earth. We must not lose sight of our true destination. If we do, we'll be confused and disoriented in our thinking about where and in what form we will spend eternity. So again, very interesting book, worth your while to check out and read through, and um, even have a discussion group, Bible study, something like that. It's very good material for that. That's probably one of the um, most engaging um, book studies that I've done. Uh, did it once at St. Albans and also out in uh, Comanche, I think, as well. Well, let's talk one more thing about toll houses. Uh, so the Eastern Orthodox um, also have a conception of the intermediate state. So they, like Anglicans, avoid often the use of the term purgatory, not rejecting the idea so much of an intermediate state where some purification and progress and maturity happens. But there's this kind of reaction against some of the speculations and, and overly um, uh, corrupt and sensational uh, devotional material that came out in the late Middle Ages and so on. But as was mentioned earlier in the parts that I read from the Orthodox Wiki, um, even in the late medieval period in the Orthodox um, uh, sphere, uh, there was a lot of kind of uh, speculation that ran, ran rampant and uh, focus on the uh, suffering um, overly um, in the intermediate state. And the Orthodox, uh, following the teaching of a couple of um, church fathers and theologians, uh, developed this whole theory of toll houses, aerial toll houses. So that is, you know, heaven's up there, earth is down here, you got to get from here to there, and as you go up, as it were, you got to cross the border, I guess, and uh, go through a series of toll booths, and um, in order to get through them, you need to sort of prove yourself worthy to go from one level of maturity and and preparedness for heaven to another uh, that happens in gradual stages. So you can see right off the bat that, okay, that kind of makes sense in terms of a symbolic way to look at 
um, maturing and getting ready for heaven that, okay, when I'm on earth, I'm not really ready, but I will gradually be getting ready and becoming more and more fit for heaven, more and more fit for God's presence. And uh, it's, it's not until I'm ready to kind of move from one step uh, to the other that I go through the toll booth, as it were. Or, or as the Anglican prayer book says, you go from strength to strength. The problem is, a lot of Orthodox took this very seriously and very literally. Um, so the page on aerial toll houses from the Orthodox wiki um, goes like this. Uh, in the section on the number of the toll houses and the description of um, what each of them is about. It says, the most detailed version of the toll houses occurs in a vision of Gregory of Thrace, apparently from the 10th century. The demons accuse the soul at each toll house of sins. In some cases, the demon might accuse the soul of sins that they tempted her with, but it didn't comply with, or of sins that she, this, she is the, the soul, that she repented for, and in that cases... One of the angels, the ones who was the person's guardian angel, speaks for the person, saying that those are lies and that payment is not necessary, taking the soul through to the next toll house. If a person has unrepented sins and does not have enough good deeds and prayers of the living to pay for them, the, the reformers would not be happy with this. Very, very much um, a works-oriented um, idea of Christian maturity in the afterlife. So if you don't have enough good deeds and prayers of the living to pay to get through the toll booth, the demons of the corresponding toll house grab him and take him to Hades to await the final judgment. So it's almost like a series of judgments to get through to the final judgment. This vision recounts the toll houses in the following order. Oh, one interesting, basically false doctrine that comes from Gregory of Thrace in this theory, uh, even if you consider it symbolically. Uh, the demons don't drag you to hell um, if you're saved. So if you're saved, there's no going to hell. Hell is where you pay punishment um, for your sins. Purgatory, in terms of the pains and the fire of purgatory, is all about growing up, as it were not about um, paying your sentence. So, uh, it says, The vision of Gregory recounts the toll houses in, in this order. The first toll house, the soul is questioned about sins of the tongue, such as empty words, dirty talk, insults, ridicule, singing worldly songs, too much or too loud laughter, and similar sins. The second is the toll house of lies which include not only ordinary lies, but also breaking oaths, the violation of vows given to God, taking God's name in vain, hiding sins during confession, and similar things. The third is the toll house of slander. It includes judging, humiliating, embarrassing, mocking, and laughing at people, and similar transgressions. The fourth is the toll house of gluttony which includes overeating, drunkenness, eating between meals, eating without prayer, not holding to the fast, choosing tasty over plain food. What's wrong with that? That's why God gave us salt and pepper. Um, anyway, 
uh, you get what it's at. Over focus on material pleasures. All about the pleasure. Uh, let's see. So choosing tasty over plain food, eating when not hungry, and the like. The fifth is the toll house of laziness, where the soul is held accountable for every day and hour spent in laziness, for neglecting to serve God and pray, for missing church services, also for not earning money through hard, honest labor, for not working as much as you are paid, and all similar sins. The sixth toll house is the toll house of theft, which includes stealing and robbery, whether small, big, light, violent, public, or hidden. The seventh is the toll house of covetousness, including love of riches and goods, failure to give to charity, and similar acts. The eighth is the toll house of usury, loan sharking, overpricing, similar sins. The ninth is the toll house of injustice, being unjust, especially in judicial affairs, accepting or giving bribes, dishonest trading and business, using false measures, and similar sins. The tenth is the toll house of envy. And that's all it says about that one. The eleventh is the toll house of pride, vanity, self-will, boasting, not honoring parents and civil authorities, insubordination, disobedience, similar sins. The twelfth is the toll house of anger and rage. The thirteenth is the toll house of remembering evil, hatred, holding a grudge, and revenge. The fourteenth is the toll house of murder, not just plain murder, but also metaphorical murder, wounding, maiming, hitting, pushing, generally injuring people. The fifteenth is the toll house of magic, divination, conjuring demons, making poison, all superstitions and associated acts. The sixteenth is the toll house of lust, fornication, unclean thoughts, lustful looks, unchaste touches. The seventeenth is the toll house of adultery. The eighteenth is the toll house of sodomy, bestiality, homosexuality, incest, masturbation, other natural sin or unnatural sins. The nineteenth is the toll house of heresy, rejecting any part of the orthodox faith, wrongly interpreting it, apostasy, blasphemy, and all other sins or similar sins. The last, the 19th toll house, is the toll house of unmercifulness, failing to show mercy and charity to people and being cruel in any way. And of course, uh, for a time, these were taken quite literally by some, not necessarily by all. I would say that the, the learning curve has gone more toward a symbolic interpretation of these toll houses or metaphorical interpretation the, the confusing thing about the idea of the toll houses to me in looking at the list is, okay, I'm going from one to the other. I'm getting closer to God. I'm maturing in my faith. But they don't seem to be arranged in terms of like I'm, I'm letting go of the, the worst sins first and then I'm getting better and better and I'm letting go of the least sins at the end. There doesn't seem to be that order of gravity uh, it's kind of like up and down all over the place in terms of um, how bad the the sinful tendencies are. Um, so it makes sense that, you know, you would go from strength to strength in terms of letting go of materialness, letting go of um, the bondage of passions and so on. 
But in terms of the description of the order of the toll houses, to me, at least, it doesn't really seem to make much sense. Um, so for me, that's both, uh, both taking it literally is, is just ridiculous. And then also, even in a metaphorical sense, uh, the way it's laid out doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Um, rather, it tends almost to gravitate back toward a more literal approach where the only sense it makes is you, you got to pay the toll to get through, um, which just brings you back into a whole self-centered, works-centered theology of salvation, um, which is just a corruption of the gospel. Well, that is laying out some ideas of the afterlife. And, and we should say the Orthodox really don't have any official statement um, that goes into any detail about the intermediate state. There's an affirmation that there's, yeah, there's an intermediate state between death and the resurrection. Um, but all we have about that are the very, very limited statements from Scripture and then otherwise theological speculation and commentary and insights from the church fathers and so on. We don't really have any conciliar statements about that. And it, interestingly, it recognizes in the Orthodox Wiki the statements of Florence, which were about putting the Orthodox and the Western Catholic churches back together, um, didn't really go very far from what the Orthodox could accept. Um, rather, it was really what was left unsaid that was what they objected to. And then, of course, there's a whole lot of other stuff that they objected to. If it, if it had all been about purgatory, they probably could have patched that up very easily. But there was a whole lot of other stuff. Uh, it was a very complex issue. Pray for the reunion of East and West. Um, so that wraps it up for our study of purgatory. We'll look at some Adventy kind of things now that we're in December. I meant to get this in uh, at the end of November, the month to pray for the Holy Souls, but we just ran out of time. My schedule didn't allow me to be here on Tuesday morning. Uh, so we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us in this uh, extended look at uh, purgatory, and particularly the Anglican teaching about the intermediate state. And remember to pray for...